This is Tim Whitmire. And I'm Chuck Price. And this is the Liner Notes Podcast, where two friends talk about all kinds of music in all kinds of ways. All right, we're back and we're ready for the laughing gas. Or to quote the great Ray Davies, we're back where we started. Here we go round again. All right, this is the Liner Notes Podcast. Uh, We've been away for a little while. I've taken a trip to a zoo station in Berlin in between uh, our last taping and now. Um, and uh, we're, we're back with another episode here. So this is, uh, this is Tim Whitmire, and I'm here with, uh, with Chuck Price. Hello, Tim. Hello, Chuck. How are you? I'm well. Good, good. Um, so we're, uh, we're back with episode four, and we're going to get right into this. And uh, what we talked about, what we wanted to talk about is, uh, is soundtracks, um, movies and music and the marriage of the two. And, uh, and I'm going to open by actually telling a story from a few weeks ago that kind of put me in the mood for this podcast, which is I went and saw my wife and I went to see the film Long Shot recently, which was sort of the latest iteration of uh, Judd Apatow's many movies in which slobby men hook up with really, really hot women. Like Char- Charlize Charlize. Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron. Yeah, yeah. So Seth Rogen bags Charlize Theron, who also happens to be Secretary of State in this yes. movie. Um, and I'm not necessarily going to recommend it as the greatest movie ever, but um, the soundtrack certainly caught my ear because uh, not only did they play the Frank Ocean version of Moon River that was on last year's Christmas mix. They'd obviously heard the 2018 Christmas mix. <laughs> obviously, the music supervisor on the movie was like, this guy has got it going on, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, and then they also played the Aretha Franklin version of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Which means they obviously listened to our covers. The covers, yeah. So podcast. Clearly, <laughs> clearly somebody in Hollywood is listening, so we appreciate that. Um, and then the other really cool thing that they did in there was there was this whole, there's a whole section in the middle of the movie where they're listening to the Roxette song, Must Have Been Love, which was key or a key part of the soundtrack of Pretty Woman. And there's this whole dynamic of within the movie, the characters are riffing on their love of that song and their memory of it from the movie and it becomes part of their whole romance and so it was sort of a throwback to the you know meta reference it's to meta. soundtracks yes yep. and and chuck and i had been talking about um sort of the overarching question of what happened to the soundtrack why aren't movie soundtracks quite as powerful uh, the way they were back in the 1980s and 1990s when when we were growing up um so we want to get into that a little bit today um the first thing that we want to do though is we want to sort of set some parameters and and give some definition here about um so i'm gonna i'm gonna let chuck answer this question um but that and that would sort of be what is the difference between a soundtrack and a score from what I know and what the Googles tell me and also what I kind of think, um, soundtrack is kind of the umbrella. Um, a score is part of the soundtrack, but the soundtrack is obviously the music that is played during a movie. Um, but I think the definition, as we'll talk about it today, is soundtrack is more original music, um, usually singles, that are done by various you know, bands or musicians or composers that are not necessarily part of the movie. The score is actually made specifically for the movie. It's usually instrumental. It becomes kind of embedded in the background of the movie and it's there to, you know, um, provoke feeling, mood, 
everything. So examples. Well, I mean, the most famous one of all, of course, is the John Williams Star Wars theme. Exactly. So, um, but also know, Indiana Jones. Indiana you Jones. Know. Um, you know, those are all scores. Technically, you can call it a soundtrack, but those are all scores. You know, I also look at like one of my favorite ones is um, Last of the Mohicans. Mm, like, yeah. I, that, like that's a score I could literally just listen to start to finish. Um, okay. Uh, but versus soundtrack, and that's where I think you know we might get into the levels of that. And that's and that's kind of a and the, and so the soundtrack is the use of specific songs, which are discrete entities, and you know three to five minutes long usually within the context of a movie to drive plot. Whereas the score is sort of underscoring the emotion of of the movie or the feelings it's trying to provoke. Exactly. Okay. All right. So we'll we'll start with that as a definition. And I think what we're actually going to try to get to here is to talk about how our argument would be that the very best soundtracks are sort of are, are part of the score of the movie. They are sort of deeply embedded. They're, they're not just sort of sitting there as, oh, here's a nice piece of music in the middle of the movie. It's they become part of the whole plot and emotion evoked by the movie. Right. So. Where the where I feel like the movie makes you think of the song versus the song makes you think of the movie. Okay. All right. So give me, you got examples of that? Yeah. So like, you know, we, we talk about, you know, if we go kind of on a spectrum, you know, you look at the ones that are just kind of singles that whether or not they were in the movie, I don't know if it necessarily changes the movie. So the one that always jumps out on me, which was kind of my original soundtrack hit was Simple Minds, Don't You, Forget About Me from Breakfast Club. Okay. Which became synonymous with that movie. Yep. But I don't know if it necessarily, you know, you take that out of the movie, I think you could probably substitute a bunch of songs in there. But you probably can't listen to Don't You without thinking of Breakfast Club. Yes. Okay. But that song could very easily, like, let's take it out of the movie. And what you're saying is Simple Minds could have released that as a single off of a typical album. Maybe they did. And, 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 and would it probably have, would have been a radio hit. Would have been a radio hit. And you could probably plugged it into a bunch of other movies in the 80s. And it probably would have done the same. Okay. Okay. Um, so I've sort of come up with a framework for thinking about this. And it's a, a one to five spectrum of... Um, sort of how how songs are used in a movie so we'll we'll, we'll kind of walk through this and and see what we think of it but in 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 a one on the the scale and it's basically how much is the song serving the movie and how much is the movie not really being served by the song or, or how, how they exist independent of one another so in on a, in a one on this scale songs would be used completely gratuitously or incidentally in the movie dropped in without any rhyme or reason, just kind of as a showcase in and of themselves. The, the example I think of here is um, every James Bond movie right. has some sort of theme song sung usually by some big pop singer, but not necessarily a particularly good song in some cases. Or sometimes they're good, but like they don't really, there's no rhyme or reason to their involvement with the movie. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it was usually, you know, for a while there, it was kind of an honor to be picked to do the Bond theme song. So, right. you know, all the way back, my earliest ones I can remember was like Sheena Easton doing For Your Eyes Only yep. and then Duran Duran doing A With, View to a Kill. Which again, like 
ter- first of all, terrible name for a movie, like what, whatever yeah. that means. But like, then now you have to sing a song that's right. called A View to a Kill. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, um, but they somehow but they did wrapped it. it in. Right, right. Um, but then on up to today's world, you yeah. know, we, we talked about Adele doing Skyfall, wins an Academy Award for it. Yep. yep. Um, you know, of the a movie named the same. Um, but those were kind of the songs that were specifically made to be the theme of the movie, but I don't know if they necessarily changed or affected the movie in any way. Okay, so this is sort of singer X. Yeah. Perform song Y to serve as, as, you know, centerpiece for blockbuster movie Z, you know, sort of plug and play. Right. Okay. And so from there, the next step up would be a two on the scale, right? Yeah. Okay. So what's, what's the next? Um, well, that's where I think like something like Simple Minds and Don't You okay. kind of could be a one, kind of could be a, be a two. But, you know, we've talked about, you know, getting into those great 80s movie soundtracks like Top Gun, Beverly, Beverly Hill Cop, Beverly Hills Cop, um, and others that had, you know, these great quote unquote soundtracks. But it was really just a collection of kind of random singles. Right. Now, granted, to be fair with Top Gun, you know, could Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone be used elsewhere? Sure, it obviously fit. Right, but any number of 80s action movies probably. I yeah. mean, that was so. I mean, Kenny Loggins was kind of the go to guy he for was. a soundtrack song for your 80s action movie, right? That Caddyshack. Yep. Um, but then, like, you know, Beverly Hills Comp with, you know, interesting, again, a distinction between soundtrack and score. You've got songs like. Like Glenn Fry's "The Heat Is On," yes. But then you also have Harold Faltmeyer's "Axel F," which was instrumental. Which was an instrumental and was what I'd call more of the score. That was a yeah. song that was there to become the background music of Beverly Hill Cop. That's the one that dun 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 yeah dun 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 But then, but they actually no 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 we just we just did Herbie Hancock's "Rocket." <laughs> Would you, how did Axel F is dun 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 dun? Here, actually, you know what? We'll shut up for a second. We'll let Frank insert a yeah. clip maybe from Axel F just to make sure we're correct. And if, even if he wants to throw in Rocket just for the juxtaposition. So that's, I guess you'd call level twos. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and so the, the, the thing there is you can have a soundtrack that is a nonstop hit factory. Like I, that Top Gun soundtrack, it felt like there were five straight songs right. that got released on MTV that were sort of, you know, from the Top Gun soundtrack yeah. that were big hits. You know, and, and it gets into also, you not to get ahead of our thought on what, you know, where did the soundtrack go? But back in the 80s, I, you know, I think soundtracks were such an important part because of MTV and videos, and they became many trailers for the movie. So, you know, Berlin doing Take My Breath Away right. while, like, singing on F-14s. Yeah. 
and don't inter- interspersing it with clips from the movie. Yeah. Same with Danger Zone and same going back to my original one, same with Simple Minds, don't you? Yeah. That video was them basically, you know, singing, but it had Breakfast Club clips in. So again, it kind of became a, a mini trailer for it. It was a way for bands and the movie to almost have this symbiotic promotional relationship. One's promoting the movie, one the movie's promoting the song. And I think that that probably led a little bit to the demise with the death of the video mm-hmm. over the next 20 yeah, years. So, so let's pause here. For those who are listening to this who might be younger than 35 or 30, what you have to understand is you're talking about a world where movie trailers are not immediately available on YouTube, right? No, you so had to go to the movies. You had to go to the movies to see a trailer. To watch it, the trailers, my favorite it, part. And then... And then commercials for the movies would run on network television, but you also had this captive audience of teenagers like myself and Chuck who would spend hours and hours sitting in front of the television watching, basically watching the radio because, you know, there was this innovation of cable television and they would run music videos that were the top hits of the day, just sort of back to back for hours and hours. And eventually MTV evolved into something completely different. But in our day, they would just run videos for hours and hours on end. And so if you're sitting there and you're watching four or five minutes of Berlin Take My Breath Away, that is serving not only as promoting the the song, but also it is a five-minute ad for the movie. Absolutely. So the, there was huge cross-marketing um, available to those of us who were in the demographic at the time. <laughs> So that's that's kind of a, a second. A, a, that's a, a number two level um, soundtrack. Number three is where, and this is really kind of the sweet spot. So we're probably going to yeah. spend the most time talking about this, and that is the soundtrack is deeply enmeshed with the movie and the characters and their motivations, um, and it, it, the soundtrack becomes the literal soundtrack of their li- the characters' lives within the movie. Um, and and I, I sort of broke this out as I was thinking about this into two variations. One uses songs as part of the what I call the ambient atmosphere of the movie, right? The characters are hearing and sometimes reacting to the same music as the audience. Um, and so, and Chuck, you've got a great example of this is um, from the movie Say Anything, um, uh, the replacement song that they use on there. Yeah. Yeah. So you talk about how that comes up with well, the movie. It, it's funny because I remember when the movie came out, I was deep down my replacements rabbit hole yep. and didn't feel like all that many people knew who the replacements were at the time. So I kind of felt not like that, not that many did kind of felt like it was my thing. But then when we saw the movie and there's a scene where they're sitting there, I think, just talking in a music store, John Cusack and the, and the two women um, and within your reach is playing like on the boom box in the background. Yep. And I remember jumping up going, holy cow, that's a replacement song. Like, yeah. how cool is this? Right. I can live without so much. I can die without a clue. song keeps rising in the west. But then obviously the song that becomes the iconic embedded is, you know, obviously Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes as Lloyd Dobler holds up the The boombox outside her window. 
you know, that was a, already a hit, like right. from a few years before. Right. Um, probably I think came out like '86 or '87, but then, but then it became so synonymous with that movie and that scene. That's right. where it's there to serve the movie, right? As part of the soundtrack, not just a song on the list. Right. And, and, and we would be remiss if we didn't note that, um, say anything was the first movie that Cameron Crowe ever directed. And Cameron Crowe was a former Rolling Stone writer. Um, the fictionalized version of his life is contained in the movie, almost famous because he started writing articles mm-hmm. for Rolling Stone when he was a teenager. Um, this was his for his, his directorial debut, but he had these sort of deep roots in and deep and abiding love of music that really made him one of the more kind of amazing soundtrack guys in all of Hollywood. Like you just, you knew that what you were going to get with a Cameron Crowe movie was something where music was going to be very deeply embedded in the characters' lives, but also, you know, you were going to get a real quality soundtrack. That obviously is one type of, of, uh, um, movie where you've got a, a soundtrack where the songs become part of the, the plot itself. And then, the other sort of model that I want to talk about here is you, you, you're not necessarily aware or you don't believe that the characters are necessarily hearing the songs, but the songs are being used to um, in some way punctuate, mm-hmm. very intentionally punctuate or underscore the actions and motivations and emotions of the characters. And Wes Anderson is kind of the, the master of this in movies like Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. So. And, and the thing I love about folks like... Wes Anderson and Cameron Crowe um, and even, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson with Boogie Nights and those where it's almost this curated soundtrack that's very specific to what they're doing. You know, Wes Anderson loves to go deep into some obscure, but also I think like a, a movie like Rushmore, one of my probably top five favorite movies, is almost the perfect um, combination of soundtrack and score. Um, I think the score was done by Mark Mothersbaugh, who is um, originally from Devo. There's your fun fact. But he does all the things around the harpsichord, things that is the refrain throughout most of the movie. But then Wes Anderson goes in and does these great scenes where he's using music to underscore what's going on, whether it's... The faces, ooh la la, and yep. the outro. Yep. My favorite part is the scene where um, where he's just unleashed the bees into Bill Murray's <laughs> um, hotel room, um, and he is uh, uh, leaving through the uh, service elevator and comes out in slow mo, carrying the bees in one hand and his waiter's uniform, and he sticks his gum to the wall and they're playing a fairly obscure who song yep. a quick one while he's away um which is like this nine ten minute like opus but he picks the perfect spot in between that just oh yeah and then it plays on through when bill murray comes back and you know runs over his bike and right. cuts his brakes and i oh, love that Um, and then the other one I would cite, um, I'm, I'm a, you're a bigger fan of uh, 
Well, I love Rushmore, but I'm also a big fan of Royal Town of Bones, which I think you probably don't like quite as much as Rushmore. And they they use um, the Clashes, Police, and Thieves in ah, Royal Town of yeah. Bones in a, a very memorable way as well. So, again, that's a, it's a little bit different thing because it's not like um, Max is sitting there listening to the Who song um, or, or, uh, or the... Um, in uh, in Royal Tenenbaums, but it becomes just sort of the perfect soundtrack to the action, and yeah. it, you know, almost sort of commenting on it. Um, and and Anderson, the the other th- great thing that he does is he's such a, a huge British Invasion mm-hmm. fan, and so he just sort of resuscitates all these great songs from that that era. So, yeah. Um, the the so now we're that to us, you know, that that three that middle zone is sort of the sweet spot. It I is. think we would we would both argue, and and that's where I think the greatest soundtracks right. lie. And then you start getting over to the other side, and then you get your fours, and our fours are are basically the idea that the songs drive the movie almost to the point of it being a pseudo musical, and yeah, Purple Rain being the classic example here, right? Because I mean, you can argue, is that a soundtrack or is that just Prince's greatest album that happened to be a movie as well. Right. Um, Because the songs in some way drive the narrative, but they could stand alone in and of itself. Right. And it's all, you know, it's, you know, eight, I think, print, you know, eight, I think, eight or nine, but Prince songs that happened to be a movie. And then he did, I feel like there was a follow-up too, right? Under the Cherry Moon or something, which was not... No. Purple Rain, right? No. And I but, think that's like Raspberry Beret and and, yeah. and a young Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh, there there we go. go. All right. Um, um, then, and Saturday Night Fever is another one where I would I would sort of throw that out there as you know, the movie very much driven by the soundtrack, right? Probably nothing did more for disco than Saturday Night Fever. Right. Um, and, and everybody thinks about the iconic BG songs, but also there was, you know, the Tramps, Disco Inferno, yeah. that disco version of Beethoven's Fifth. Um, but <laughs> yeah. but that was all there because, again, that could have been a Bee Gees album. Right. Otherwise. Right. And then the fifth and sort of, you know, back at the, the far end of the spectrum is the movie exists purely as a vehicle for the song. And, and I think you've got the, the best examples here is basically all the early Beatles yeah. movies, yeah. you know, Yellow Submarine, Hard Day's Night, um, Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. Those are all basically just albums that someone decided to turn into movies really again. And, and, you know, you can even go back to all the Elvis movies as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yes, where a light stitching of plot right, hold together a right. series you of know, uh, the antics of these four boys from England. Um, but really, it's just a way to push the push the album, basically. So so having sort of created this framework one to five and, and we've agreed kind of the sweet spot is is one to three. I mean, it's right there in the in the three in the middle. Um Let's go back. I mean, you've got a theory. I've kind of got a theory about why the the soundtrack is not what it once was, and with Hollywood movies. So, what? Why don't you go first? Well, I, you know, touched on it earlier. I do think that the death of the video um, coincided with somewhat of the death of the soundtrack. Um, I also think that the rise of iTunes 
Yep. You know, while iTunes killed the album and promoted the single, you know, back in the day, you know, I remember buying the Breakfast Club soundtrack, the Pretty in Pink soundtrack, even right. into my 20s, you know, the Empire Records soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was almost kind of a greatest hits amalgam of these songs. But then once iTunes came along, I could just go pick the sure, one or the two songs, songs that you liked, right? Um, to the point that even I think that there still are some albums on iTunes that you can't buy the songs anymore. Like for the longest time, you couldn't go on to you couldn't buy songs off Breakfast Club. You had to buy the whole album. Oh, okay. Um, so I think that those were the two main things from my end that I think drove the demise. Yeah, and then, and then the only thing I would add to that is I, I do think the shift in the way Hollywood movies are made today, the the franchise model. Um, the the triumph of the comic book movie as blockbuster and you know sort of tentpole franchises which are really aimed at an international market has really changed the dynamic of how you score and soundtrack mm-hmm. those movies because um, individual music markets internationally differ widely people listen you know K-pop is you know it actually is made inroads here in the U.S. but like you can't you can't expect to send a soundtrack filled with U.S. performers over to you know the the Asian market and expect it to do really well. So I think musically you have to sort of back off on the cultural specificity of a lot of, of any movie that you expect to really do a lot of overseas business. And, and the interesting thing is, I still think movies have very interesting, even today, soundtracks like just. You know, both the Deadpools, I think, have fun soundtracks. Mm, you know, mm. the first one with DMX and the second one has this great Run the Jewels song at, at certain parts. But even going back to like movies, it's probably 10 plus years old now, but like a girl next, the girl next door has this fantastic soundtrack of both songs you know that they use perfectly in the movie, like, uh, you know, Bowie and Queens Under Pressure or Filter. Um, take a picture then they use a bunch of songs that I'd not heard before but if you go look at it it's not really songs that were specific to the movie meaning like you could only get them on the soundtrack he just Mm -hmm. went curated kind of like Wes Anderson does all these songs that fit well right Um, so again like I don't think that there's really any more don't choose and breakfast clubs because there's no more we're going to take this one single that's not going to sit anywhere else on an album yet and it's going to be the tentpole of this well, and that was, I mean, that to me, that is a very, was a very 80s thing. And again, you talked about the advent of iTunes. Like nowadays, you don't have to wait, you know, artists don't have to wait for their next album to put out a song, right? Right. So back in the 80s, and, and I'll, I'll use Madonna as the example. Madonna comes out with her first album, Like a Virgin. It's a huge hit in 1984. Her second album, and I'm going to forget the name here, um, doesn't come out until 86, but in the meantime, they bridged that gap and kept her on the radio by putting a soundtrack song on. The, the one I remember was from the, the movie Vision Quest, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, the song Crazy For You. Came out in 
1985 and kept her on the radio and she had you know so this continuous string of being having at least one top 40 hit for like three years there between the two albums and so that became the way to bridge um, from one album uh, to another when you were going to be off the radio for a while. And then, I mean, the, the other thing that we joked about this earlier, but guys like Glenn Fry and Kenny Loggins, I don't think they ever put out albums. They just did soundtrack right. song after soundtrack song in the 80s. You know, and, and same on the Madonna, and I think it was because of her relationship with Sean Penn, but she did a one-off for a sneaky good movie at close range, mm-hmm. Sean Penn, Christopher Walken. Um, Live to Tell, which was kind of one of her yep. first ballads. Yep. Yep. Um, and I'm not sure if that sat on an album otherwise. It actually probably was on True Blue. But I yeah, think it... True Blue was the, yeah, yeah, that was I, the 86 album. I think yeah. it came out specifically for this first. I could yeah. be wrong, but that's what I remember it from. Yeah. So so that that has gone away because nowadays, you know, yes, some artists do wait for... Um, do put out discrete albums, but even even the album cycles have gotten to the point where when you hear a new single from an artist in this day and age, even album-oriented artists like The National or Springsteen, that's usually three months in advance of the album coming out, and they sort of leak them out one by one, and then maybe they put the full album out. You know, speaking of Springsteen, Streets of Philadelphia. Ah, yes. For the movie Philadelphia. Best song winner at the Academy Award. Written specifically for that song. Specifically for that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of became, I think, that nice bridge between soundtrack and score. I was bruised and battered. I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. I saw my reflection in a window and didn't know my own face. Oh, brother, gonna leave me wasting away on the streets of Philadelphia. I guess, you know, when we're talking about that sweet spot, kind of that, that three zone that we talked about, it really, and you kind of made this point earlier, like, it is impossible to listen to that Simple Mind song, Don't You, and not think of The Breakfast Club. Right. And, like, there becomes the symbiosis mm-hmm. between the song. And Say Anything is maybe the best example here because it was, you know, it was a single from Peter Gabriel's So album in 1986. That was a, a mega hit album that had Sledgehammer and Red Rain on it and all that stuff. And then three or four years later, it gets used in that movie and it becomes synonymous. I mean, you know, yeah. Lloyd Dobler with his boombox, I'm, I'm sure, is a meme on, uh, right. uh, on, on Twitter or wherever these days. So um, the, the two, the mo- it enhances the movie and the movie enhances the mm-hmm. song and it becomes a sort of, you know, very powerful example of that. So, and that the, the other one I was thinking about in this regard was, um, and, and this is actually takes us into television, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to bring up is, um, if you were 14 years old or 15 years old as I was in 1985 or 1984 when Miami Vice came mm-hmm. on and the pilot of Miami Vice uh, ran for two hours and there was this scene where they were driving in Sonny Crockett's black Ferrari mm-hmm. and they used the Phil Collins song in the air tonight. And that was like, that was so unbelievably different for television at the time. It, it was. And um, I, th- I think that was early Michael Mann yes. doing that. And throughout that series, there was, cause you're right, th- that became iconic with that 
with that first episode. Yeah. And then throughout it, I remember they did a great one where they used uh, Dire Straits Brothers in Arms. Yes, that, uh, that's another amazing. Busting yeah. down the wall, yeah. arrest them. Yeah. Um, but then it's funny because I was flipping through the other night and came across um, Risky Business. Mm-hmm. Which uses also uses in the in there tonight, tonight on the when train scene on the train scene. Yeah, um, but another one where it's a great combination of music and score because I think it was Tangerine Dream that does the score in that you know '80s very iconic '80s synth in, sound in risky business in risky business that plays throughout the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. and then they insert the, song. the, the songs the right way. And that, I mean, so, and the funny thing was, like, so many people use that Phil Collins song, which is from maybe 1981 or one of his albums. Um, And it became almost a cliche of, like, 80s movies or TV that, like, you would use that for sort of the pensive, you know, dramatic. All the way up to Mike Tyson decking Zach Galifianakis in Hangover, (laughs) right when the drums come in. Yes. Um, so it, it almost became this cliche, but I, 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 to wind it back to like the, people talk about like prestige TV and, you know, you read TV critics like Alan Siepenwall and they'll talk about the history of prestige TV and how, um, uh, Stephen Bochco with Hill Street Blues yep. really kind of, um, that was the forerunner of today's prestige TV. Um, I would argue that the most interesting soundtrack work being done today is actually not in movies, but on in prestige TV. I'd agree. Um, and that, that, that Miami vice pilot and, and what they did with music throughout the series was sort of the shot across the bow of, Hey, you can do some really amazing stuff on television. Um, and so we, we wanted to kind of close here by just talking about a few of those, um, really kind of interesting, um, where, where we think some of the most interesting work is being done today. Obviously Miami vice was that first bell. I would personally single out, um, both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And um, if you are a Better Call Saul fan, you'll remember they opened um, this last season, episode seven. Um, they had a long montage that opened uh, the episode that sort of advanced the the story by about nine months. Um, and they used a cover version of the Frank and Nancy Sinatra song, um, Something Stupid, by a band called Lolo Marsh. And there's a really, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but the music supervisor for that show, Thomas Golubuk, um, has a really interesting podcast where he talks about how they came to do that and how that all came together. Um, and I, so they do, they do amazing work with the music on, on both in Breaking Bad, but currently on Better Call Saul. And then the other one I would cite is um, an HBO show that's been off the air for a couple of years called The Leftovers, um, where they used Wu Tang Clan, and uh, and then famously in the last season um, there is a brass instrumental version of Aha's Take on Me um, that it pops up and you're like. Oh my God! I know that song. Yeah. Oh wait, that's Aha, and uh, and it's perfect for the scene. So, you know, uh, 
I've got to get a shout out for one of my um, unsung sneaky favorite shows of the last few years, um, Peaky Blinders on okay, Netflix, yeah. which yeah. is all about the the Irish gypsy mob in Birmingham, England, uh, right after World War One. Um, but what's interesting is they use modern music throughout it, and it's uh, everything from Nick Cave um, to PJ Harvey. Um, but they use it in such a way that it's the juxtaposition between kind of this, this, this modern sensibility up against this, you know, almost hundred year old story that they're telling. So that's got a fantastic soundtrack. Um, the entire run of Friday night lights. Yes. And that's again, another, an example of soundtrack and score combination. Um, they were pulling in, um, kind of topical, I guess you'd say current fresh music, mainly from Texas and Austin where it was all set. Yep. So you'd have the old 97, you'd have Daniel Johnston, you'd have all that. But at the same time, Explosions in the Sky, mm-hmm. which is an Austin band that does nothing but instrumentals, are the ones that do the score to it, which if you're a Friday Night Lights fan is... Was such a huge part of the yeah, emotional it, impact of that show. I mean, yeah. it, you can't hear it without thinking of that show. Yeah. Peter Berg, who's the director of the movie, um, and then you know, he was an executive producer of the show. show. Yeah. He's gone on to use them, so it's the same kind of feeling and vibe in his movies, like uh, um, The Kingdom. Even though that might have been Danny Elfman doing the same thing, but but I do know his Explosions in the Sky and uh, um, and Lone Survivor. Mm. And I've also got to give a shout out to at the end when they start playing, when they roll the credits and they play the pictures of the real folks from Lone Survivor and they're playing Peter Gabriel doing uh, Bowie's Heroes (laughs) at, you know, at half the tempo. Yeah. Um, It might have gotten dusty in there. Um, And the final, uh, the final one I want to call out here working in TV today is the, um, and again, not one of my favorite shows, but um, Westworld, um, they've got a composer, a guy named Roman Jawadi, um, who will arrange well-known pop songs and drop them in to the score of the episode in utterly surprising and often delightful ways. So um, the most, the example that that Chuck and I uh, both really grooved on was um, he used Radiohead's exit music from a film from uh, the OK Computer album um, in the middle of a, I think it was a season one episode and you're sort of listening to it like, oh, I think it was playing like on the player piano and it became almost kind of thing with each episode. There was a song inserted that you'd have to kind of stop and go, Okay, I know this, but what is it from where? Yeah. Um, it's too bad that the show sucks, but Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
But so, those, I mean, guys like that, Golubek, um, Jawadi, Liza Richardson on uh, on the leftovers. Um, you know, obviously Peter Berg has some deep feelings for music based on on all the work he's done. They're the ones who, you know, it's really television almost with, that's kind of keep carrying the torch yeah. of you know, innovative and interesting use of music in uh, um, in filmed uh, entertainment yeah. these days. So. Um, all right, well, that's going to be well a as we close it out. Yeah. What's your favorite? Uh, I, I gotta go with say anything. I mean, I, I just, the replacement song that's on there is one of my favorite replacement songs ever from actually my least favorite replacements album. But, um, I'm not, I'm not a big hoot and Annie fan, but I love within your reach. And then, um, the use of in your eyes is just, and, and I, I happen to love that movie better than I love any other of Cameron Crowe's movies. I, that, that one hit me more than say singles did. Um, and so I, I, that's the one I would go with. So, what about you? Uh, probably singles. Okay. Um, All right. So we're both Cameron Crowe. Just, yeah. You know. Yeah. Actually, but it's that classic thing. I think I was probably nineteen when uh, when Say Anything came out. You were nineteen when Singles came out. Yeah. And, and the rule of thumb is whatever music is on the radio when you're nineteen is always your favorite music. And it and you know singles obviously it fits so well with what he was trying to capture in the Seattle scene right. at the time with the music, um, but also between. Westerberg stuff, you know, yep. dyslexic heart, um, waiting for somebody. If you listen to the music, they actually take dyslexic heart, which was kind of the hit, mm. and there's acoustic versions running in the background of the music, I mean, of the movie, so it becomes the score as well. Uh, okay. But then, you know, Cornell and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. It's the first time I like I'd never even heard of uh, um, Smashing Pumpkins yep. until um, I heard uh, Drown, which was the last song on there. Yeah. Um, but probably from start to finish. Yeah. Singles. singles. What was the name of Matt Dillon's band in that movie? Citizen Dick. <laughs> Touch me, I'm Dick, which is a takeoff on Mud Honey's "Touch Me, I'm Sick." And then the <laughs> fact that he had Eddie Vedder and Stone Gossard and Jeff Emmett and those guys as his backup right. band was right. You know, it's, it's just awesome. We are known, we are loved and adored in Italy and in Belgium. <laughs> and on that note, on that note, uh, Citizen Dick, we uh, we love you guys. We'll throw this out like we do with all these. Um, we pr- covered a lot here, but I know we probably missed. So if you tell us what we missed, tell us what your favorite ones are. Um, shoot it to us, either tweet at us, call us. Yeah. And, and so, so the, uh, um, your, uh, it's liner podcast at gmail.com and, um, on Twitter we're at liner pod. So, um, get in touch with us, uh, let us know what you thought. And, uh, if we're missing some great soundtrack work that's being done in movies today because we're old and we yeah, never go to the actually, movies anymore, yeah. let us know that as well. Cause we both admit we are old. So um, for Chuck Price, I'm Tim Whitmire. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. Rock on.